The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. All right. Let's uh, let's take our Bibles. I'm going to go to the book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles in the Old Testament. And look at a story of a man who um, is arguably one of the most wicked men in the Bible. And his story comes up twice: once in Second Chronicles 33, and once in Second Kings 21. But we'll look at Second Chronicles chapter 33. And we're going to read from verse 1 all the way down to verse number 20. We're looking tonight at the the topic of what we believe about repentance. And as I was studying and looking through it all, I thought to myself, well, what would help better than if we looked at an example, a life of somebody who actually went through repentance, and then we'll go back and we're just going to draw a bunch of little lessons. And all those verses on that sheet there, are given there so you don't have to scramble around looking them up back and forth. And you can make a note in between the lines if you want to. I didn't give you much room. But there is some on the back space. If you want to make your own notes, you can do that. Uh, Either way, you can just follow along with that. So 2 Chronicles chapter 33 and beginning at verse 1 describes a man named Manasseh. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 35 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected the altars to the Baals and made Ashtaroth and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the, in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall be my name forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hidnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and built, dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses." Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. In verse 10 it says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him and God was moved 
by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem and into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was his God. And afterward he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the armies and all the fortified cities in Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside of the city. He also restored of the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel and his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithlessness and the sites on which he built high places and set up the Asherim and the images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his house, and Ammon, his son, reigned in his place. And if you were to go on and read the next five verses, 21 to 25, you're going to see that sadly his son learned nothing from his father and carried on in the wickedness that his father had lived in for all those years. If you look at the two accounts, Second Chronicles 33 and Second Kings 21, and line them up, what you're going to see in Second Kings 21 is there's no mention whatsoever of his repentance, his return to God and God's blessing of him at the end of his life. What you have in Second Kings is this account of his wickedness. And then the writer of the Kings ascribes the captivity to the people to Manasseh's sin. And basically, Second Kings just says he's the one. It's his fault. They went into captivity. But the chronicler you got to remember, uh, there's a great deal of evidence that would say that Ezra was probably the writer of Chronicles. And he's writing Chronicles to the people who have gone back to the land. And he's giving them an account. Listen, if you repent of your sin, God will have grace and God will have mercy. And this story is an amazing story. A man who was so wicked. And, you know, we think about repentance. I was thinking about stories we could use to describe and display what real repentance looks like from the Bible's perspective. And one of the first ones that always comes to mind is David. We think of David and his terrible affair with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah, his lies, and all the rest of that. And we think about David's psalm, Psalm 51, the psalm of repentance. And we think there is a godly man who repented. And yet when you look at Manasseh, you think, wow, it displays something so much different, not better or not worse, really. But it's different in the sense that it shows that even a man who goes all the way down to the depths of godliness, he can still be forgiven. There is a, a little line that comes in the London Baptist Confession of Faith that says, there is no sin too small for which there is not damnation. And yet there is no sin so great that God cannot forgive it. And those two things are so true, aren't they? There is no sin so small that God goes, yeah, never mind. 
And there's no sin that's so great that God says, you know, there just isn't enough blood from the Lord Jesus to deal with that. And there is hope. I want to look at this man's life and then just, just notice some things about it and we'll refer to lots of scriptures. Then I want to go through and just outline what we believe about repentance from the scriptures. So I want you to notice, first of all, he did evil and it was in the Lord's sight. We often describe and analyze and think about what is right or wrong, what is holy or not in our own perspective. And we set our own standards for what is good or evil, what is bad and evil and so on. But in the Bible, it says in the Lord's sight, he did evil. It was God's estimation that was important. In fact, repentance is necessary because God is an absolutely holy God. And one of the things I think that we as a church and we as believers living in the day we live in is we have lost the sense of the absolute holiness of God. And one thing I would love for us as a church to do is to regain that sense so that when we come to worship, we come with a beautiful blend of rejoicing and reverence. He is a holy God, and because he is a holy God, repentance is required. Well, look at this list of things he did. He did evil in agreement with the abomination of all the Gentiles. So all the worst sins of the, of the Gentile peoples, Manasseh's there doing it. He replaced the, the smashed pagan idols. Hezekiah, his father, had smashed them. Manasseh went running around. He repaired them, put them back up. By the way, if you look at Ammon, his son, he does exactly the same thing. His father throws him out the city. Ammon goes running out, picks him up, and carries him back in the city and puts him back up again. It's this terrible cycle. But Manasseh is one who replaced the smashed pagan idols. He restored the false and pagan idolatry in verse 3. The Baals, the Ashtaroth, and the heavens worship. So they would have, like the Babylonians, who worshipped all the stars. And there's some interesting theories about the origins of astrology and all of that and how it works to come out of the Babylonians and the Greeks. And their worship of astrology came from this. The Magi were talking about the other night. They were probably men who worshipped the stars and followed the stars at the very least. He put them back up and he established them as worship for the people of Israel. He defiled God's temple and he defiled true worship. And you see that again in verse number three. He brings these altars and he sets them up in the Lord's house. You got to stop for a second and just think about that. The grace of God that allowed him to do those things and allowed it to carry on. Even though God is absolutely holy, God is also a patient God. He defiled God's temple. He offered human sacrifices. If you look at verse number 6, it says, He burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. What they would do is some of those idols were great bronze statues. And one of them in particular, a god named Molech, used to have arms like this out. And they would be a flat channel on his arms. And his mouth would be open right up to it. And they would put a fire in the bottom of a hollow idol and burn it till it's super hot. And the, when the bronze got white hot, they would take infants and put them on and they would roll down and fall into the bottom of this thing. This is what Manasseh did. And you think, what an ungodly, what a wicked man. How could God tolerate this? How could God allow it? He dabbled in the cult. You see fortune-telling, omens, sorcery, medium, and necromancers. He dabbled in uh, communicating with the dead. He was 
a wicked, ungodly man. In fact, at the close of that description, the writer Ezra, I believe it was, he sums it up again and doesn't say he did what was evil. He did much evil. He underlines and underscores and you think, how could God use this man? And yet he does. But notice what it says uh, in verse number six. It says he provoked the Lord to anger. You think about descriptions of God and his anger. God is long suffering. He is patient. He endures with great patience. And yet this man was one who finally provoked God to anger. He aroused the wrath of almighty God. He provoked him to anger. But you know what it does remind us of is Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 20. It says that surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. If we turn to Romans chapter 3 and we can look at that long list there and we can look at Manasseh and we can almost get up on our high horse and kind of put our hands on our hips and shake our heads and clock our tongues and think, oh, what a terrible man was Manasseh. Until we realize that but for the grace of God, but for the restraining hand of God, there go we also. I mentioned this morning in passing, but I mentioned again, God in grace never lets us see the full depth of our wickedness and our sin. In one sense, God in grace reaches down with his hand and just covers over our eyes a little bit and says, I don't want you to see just how much is your wickedness and sin. I have dealt with it in grace. I think if God pulled back his restraining hand and for a moment let us see the depths of the wickedness of our souls, we would go mad, unable to deal with it. And yet this man provoked the Lord to anger and he is just like all of us. Notice also, he led the nation astray. In, it says in uh, verse number uh, 9, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. If it wasn't so, it wasn't enough that Manasseh himself was a wicked man and doing all these wicked things. He turned around with the people of God. And when we understand that the relationship of the kings to the people, they were to represent God to the people. And as the king went, God dealt not only with the king, but he also dealt with the whole nation of people as well. And then you read those words. He led the nation astray. He led the Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than all the other nations. And the Bible says in the next verse there that now, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people. If you notice a little further down, it talks about those whom God raised up to go and speak to him. Uh, verse 18, it says, the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to God, and the words of the seers, uh, they're like prophets or spokesmen for God, who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And they're all written in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. But the Lord spoke to Manasseh. And there again, you say, there is grace. God comes with a message and you can almost see the heart of God breaking. This king is a son of David. He is a king who is representing God to the people of Israel. He is the people, the king who is leading God's people astray. And you see the grace of God coming to him to speak to him, to try and turn him from his actions. But look at these sad words. But they paid no attention. You think, wow, what hope has this guy got? And you know, as we read the story, I just got to stop and make one little 
application to this. If there is someone in your life and you have been pleading with them about the Lord and sharing the gospel with them and it seems like they've just turned hardened hearts and they're pushing away the message, they want nothing to do with the message of hope that you're sharing, don't despair. God has His timing. God has His ways. God knows what He is about. And I don't, we're all the same. We want God to act. We have great plans for what God should do in our life and the lives of people we know. And we want God to act right now. But God had to take Manasseh and he had to take him to the very end of himself until the Assyrians came and captured him with hooks. I don't know exactly what that means. I have some suspicions. It was something quite gory and rather brutal they did to Manasseh. Probably through his nose, yeah. Uh, that would probably be the, the minimum. Probably a lot worse too. And they took him and they put him in chains and took him uh, to Assyria, and, or Babylon, sorry, and there he was in chains. And then you read these great words in verse number 12, and when he was in distress. <laughs> At the very end of it, you know, he's in chains. He's got this hook through his nose and probably other parts and he's in the absolute bottom. He's lost his kingdom. He's lost everything. He is now the, the, the common prisoner of the Babylonian kings. And you think his life is over. What, what can God possibly do with this man at this absolute end point? It would seem to us. And in his distress, he cried out to the Lord his God. And Ezekiel 36, 31 tells us that then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you'll loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. I believe as he sat there in that jail cell in those bronze chains, he remembered the words of the prophets that came and pleaded with Manasseh to turn back and God was already at work. Uh, I think I, I was telling someone this morning, um, I think it might have been Sebastian, we were, I was watching on... Uh, YouTube. Uh, who knows the name Jim Carrey, the actor? Yeah, a few of you know the name? Yeah, he's been, he's been in some funny movies and so on. He's kind of disappeared off the acting scene for a while, and he's gone, and he's now this artist. He does some, uh, it's not my personal taste in artwork, but he does these massive canvases. And I'll say one thing for him. There's a lot of things you could say negative about him, but he's an extremely honest person. He was talking about his own struggle with fame and fortune, his own struggle with his own reality. And he was painting a picture of Jesus' face. And he's talking as he's painting away. And he said, you know, I don't know if Jesus exists. I don't know what's going on. I don't know, I don't know what there is about him. And he painted the eyes of Jesus. And that was the most striking thing about the painting. And as he's painting away these little tiny strokes and there's incredible detail in the eyes, he said, I want it to be when someone walks in and sees this painting, I want them to see the eyes of Jesus, that Jesus can see into the very depths of their soul and deal with whatever's there. He goes, and then he goes, I don't even know if Jesus is real. I thought, <laughs> somewhere in there, somewhere in his past, somewhere in his history, he has heard something about Jesus. Enough to know, even though he won't bring himself to publicly admit it, he understands that Jesus can do good. He understands that Jesus can heal. I thought to myself, I don't know if there's somebody in his life, a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or a family relative who has shared the gospel with him 
And if they see that to think that Jim Carrey all these years later is still chewing over who it is that God is. And I'm convinced that for Manasseh, as he was in the jail cell, he began to think about the things that God had said in his life, and he began to have this terrible distress, this grief and sorrow over his sin. The Bible says um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And I'm con- death. And I'm convinced that here's Manasseh in the prison cell and he's going through that. Because what does he do? The Bible says when he was in distress, when he got to that point, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God. And you know, when you're at that point, when friends and neighbors, they hear the gospel and you think, why won't they respond? Sometimes they have to get to the absolute end of themselves. And the only thing left, the only card they have left to play is the favor of God. And really what that means is he pleaded the grace of God. There's nothing left. Lord, I'm in a chain, I'm in chains, I'm in a cell. I've got nothing. I've lost it all. I have squandered my my reign, my kingdom. I have lost everything. I've I've done all these wicked things in my life. All I can do now is plead for the grace of God. And you know, I was I was thinking about this and, and I think we in our minds put categories in place. Who do we think that God can save and who do we think that's just somehow a little bit beyond? And I remember reading that, that little phrase again that said that there's no sin so small that it does not bring damnation and no sin so great that God cannot forgive. And this may shock you, but if Adolf Hitler at the end of his life had turned to God and pleaded with God for grace, I am convinced, not because of Adolf Hitler, but because of God and his grace, that there would be forgiveness found for him. Consequences? Absolutely. Manasseh would have carried the scars of his imprisonment for the rest of his life. Manasseh squandered all those years, and what he got back was probably nothing compared to what he had to start with. But he pleaded for the grace of God And brothers and sisters, we have to look at the world around us and go, it doesn't matter what their sin is, God's grace is able to overcome. There is repentance available. He pleaded for the grace of God. And God in grace and mercy, he responded to that. Listen to what it says. Uh, He humbled himself. He treated the favor of God. And in verse 12, he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty. There was a genuineness. There was a reality. It wasn't just a Lord, get me out of this mess kind of prayer. It was a prayer that moved God. God who could see to the very core of every man's soul and every man's being was moved by this prayer of Manasseh. I don't know many scriptures that talk about God moving And God changing. Because we do believe absolutely that God is unchangeable in his purposes, his person, and his promises. But God does relate to his people. So when we pray, God does answer. So if you're sharing the gospel with somebody you know and love, it just seems like they're not going to respond. There's a hardened wall up there. God has a way of breaking that wall down. And when they pray... And when God finally breaks all down and when they pray and respond, God will relate to them. God will deal with them. 
And it says that God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem and into his kingdom. God restored to him those things. I got a verse there, Joel 2.25. It's on the blow down the first page there. Um, great promise. Remember the story of Joel? There's been a great plague. The locusts have come through and they've literally destroyed everything. You think, what's left? What can, what can happen now? And sometimes in our life we get involved in sin and it leaves a terrible wake of destruction behind it. And you wonder, what can be done? And the, Joel, right, the prophet Joel writes these words, I will restore to you the years the swarming locust has eaten, the, hop, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. What's he saying? God can restore we think it's beyond reach. We think it's beyond salvation. God can restore it. And God brings Manasseh back and he puts him back into Jerusalem and back into his kingdom. And Manasseh, it says there, he knew that the Lord was God. I think that knowledge doesn't mean this kind of knowledge. I think it means experiential. Yeah, this kind of knowledge. He knew it in his heart. He knew in his heart and the, the way that God had responded, he realized by the experience of confession and seeking God's forgiveness, pleading for God's grace. And what follows that? Does Manasseh go right back to the old ways? Now he's got his kingdom back. He can go back and do what he did once before. No, not at all. And this is where repentance shines through in Manasseh's life. It says he built the outer wall for the city of David and so on. And then it says in verse number 15, he took away the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord and all the idols, all Try it again. He took away all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and he threw them outside the city. And look what it says in verse 16. He restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices. And probably your NASB will have fellowship offerings and thanksgiving or peace offering. What does it got there? You have peace in yours, Wes? Yeah, okay. The, the, that word, which you go back to Leviticus and the peace offering, it's also translated fellowship offering. It's the idea of a restored relationship. So Manasseh goes back and he brings back the great big altar of the Lord. He rebuilds it. He restores, which means he would have had the priest anoint it with blood and water and cleanse it all. And Manasseh offers to the Lord sacrifices of offering to celebrate peace between him and God. It's a testimony to the fact that there was, in fact, peace. There was reconciliation. True repentance had been experienced by this man, Manasseh. Not only that, it says, uh, verse 16 again, he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. And you have that phrase, nevertheless, you think, oh, no. The people still sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. In other words, they didn't get it all right, but their hearts were in the right place. They were trying to serve God. And this man's repentance had an effect on the nation behind him. He said, that's what real repentance is. There is a distress, a brokenheartedness before God, a crying out to God, a responding to God in prayer, a changing of ways and God restoring and the dedication of the rest of the life to live godly in Christ Jesus. So what do we believe from that example? What do we believe about repentance? We believe repentance is a turning towards God for salvation. The Bible says 
In Isaiah 45, verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning towards God. We believe that God commands all men everywhere to repent. The Bible says in Acts 17 and verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. There's one thing that winds me up like nothing else. It's hearing the gospel presented as, a, well, you know, God doesn't want to impose on your life, but he's offered you this wonderful package gift. And, you know, you can take it or you can leave it. You know, God won't be offended. That's rubbish. It's absolutely wrong. The fact is, God has said, you will repent. And if you don't, you'll go to hell. In that clear terminology. And we do a major disservice to people when we present the gospel as something you can do with as you like. No. God commands all men everywhere to repent. God gives repentance as a gift. Acts 11 verse 18, when they heard these things, this is the Jews hearing about the Gentiles. It says they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted, has given repentance that leads to life. It's a blessing of God. So you look at Manasseh's life and think, oh, what a terrible situation. It was. But God knew exactly what he was doing. Did you notice in 2 Chronicles 33, it says he entreated the favor of the Lord, his God. Yeah, he makes it as a personal thing. He's, it's, God is already working in the life of Manasseh. There's no need for despair there. Listen, if there's someone that you're witnessing to and they are not responding, don't despair. Don't give up hope. Because God knows what he is doing. And it may be the path that God has taken them on is all a part of, it is not, not maybe, it is for sure, God's part of his whole plan for that person's life. Uh, Augustine got involved, St. Augustine, the guy in the, in the 300s, got involved in the Manichees. And his mother Monica was absolutely distraught because they were a cultic uh, version of Christianity. And someone else, uh, Piper, when he was doing the, the biography of Augustine, said, we don't despair over those things. Because even the fact that Augustine went to the Manichees, his heart was searching. He was looking for answers to his questions. And he went in one direction. And even though it was the wrong direction, he was working through it. God wasn't done with him. And God, of course, you know the story of Augustine. God brought him out of that. And God saved him powerfully. And he wrote five million words of devotional and biblical and theological writing. One of the greatest, I think one of the most extensive writers in all of Christian history. God knew what he was doing. God was taking him down that course, course for a reason. God gives repentance as a gift. God brings repentance by a work of the Holy Spirit. In Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, the Bible says this, I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over forceborn. What he's saying there is, 
The Spirit of God will work in the lives of those people. And I'm convinced that 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 fulfillment of that is in Acts 2, when the Spirit of God is poured out and they realize the one that they have pierced and they will be cut to the heart, as Acts 2 says. Here it says they will mourn and weep bitterly. That's repentance. When the Spirit of God works in the life and the heart of somebody, that is repentance. And it's a work of the Spirit of God. It has to be. We are brought, we believe that we're brought to repentance by several things, all of them works of God. Um, I'm going to just mention the references for sake of time, but uh, we believe that we're brought to repentance by the long suffering of God. You see that in 2 Peter 3 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient. God's long suffering. You can see that in the life of Manasseh, can't we? God was patient, waiting. Even though all the wicked things he took the nation through, God was just patient. He knew what he was going to do. He had a plan and he was working it out. And at the end of the day, Manasseh would be restored. The people would be led back into the right worship of God. God is patient. It's the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. It's the holiness of God that requires it. It's the justice of God that acts if we refuse but it's the goodness of God. You can look at goodness two ways. One, two of many ways, I should say. The goodness of God is God's grace giving us what we don't deserve. And the goodness of God is God's mercy not giving us what we do deserve. God would have been absolutely just to strike Manasseh dead in the most horrifying way. Remember Herod refused to give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and his intestines spilled out and all this horrible yuck stuff. That was God's just dealing with him. And you know, when I, I read those words about Manasseh and in being taken away with hooks and chains of bronze and brought to Babylon, I made a note, the Lord deals harshly. And I thought, no, that's not right. I scratched out harshly. I thought, the Lord deals justly. And I was going through my notes. I thought, you know, that's really not even right either. I mean, he does deal justly, absolutely. But you know what you should say there? The Lord deals graciously because he took him to Babylon, put him in chains in a dungeon. And that's the point when he reached and cried out to God. So repentance is brought about by the long suffering, the patience of God, the goodness of God, and also by the discipline of God. You got that passage in 1 Kings 8 there. And it talks about the people of Israel. And it's Solomon's dedication prayer for the temple. And he's talking about how when a day comes, if they are carried off captive of the enemies, and if they turn in their heart, and the, sorry, they turn their heart in the land to which you have been carried them captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray toward to you toward their land, which you gave them, then hear their prayer and so on. In other words, if you in discipline, discipline the people of Israel, your people, and they respond to it and they repent, then Lord, hear their prayers. And the reality is that God brings discipline in our lives like every loving father brings discipline in the lives of his children. Every loving mother brings discipline in the lives of their children in order to bring them to repentance and a brokenheartedness and a change of ways. So God brings us to repentance by long-suffering and goodness and discipline. 
Godly sorrow produces repentance. And we saw that very clearly in Manasseh's life. He was in distress. And I don't think that means just his chains. I, mean, I think it means distress of heart. He was broken over it. Godly sorrow produces repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10, we read it already. Uh, conviction of sin is necessary for repentance. In 1 Kings 8, 37 and 39, the Bible talks... Um, I'll read the whole thing. If there is a famine in the land, if there's pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people, Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart. What does that mean? He doesn't mean the affliction like sickness of heart. He means the conviction of sin that's in their own heart. And all of us know that moment when we realize that we have sinned against God and our conscience begins to talk to us in the dark parts of the night. You can't sleep and your conscience is just... You ever notice the conscience never sleeps? Doesn't need sleep and won't shut off when you go to sleep. It just sits there. And it just natters away in your ear with the most annoying and accurate statements. And the conscience provokes them. In their hearts, they know their affliction. Conviction of sin is necessary for repentance. And not only that, but repentance should be evidenced. And we see that in Manasseh's life. He showed his repentance by the things he did. He went back. He threw away the old gods, got rid of them. He reestablished right worship and right order. He commanded all the people to serve and honor and love the Lord our God. What did John the Baptist say? The Pharisees come down to for a baptism of repentance. And you can almost, maybe I'm being judgmental, but bear with me for a sec. You can almost hear the Pharisees, their minds turning. Everybody's going out for baptism. It's a baptism of repentance, you know. If everybody else goes and we don't go, well, you know, we're not going to look all that holy like we like looking. And so I think, you know, maybe what we ought to do is get down there and get baptized too. I mean, who's going to know, right? And they go down there and they stand by the Jordan. They want to get baptized. And John the Baptist turns and points his long finger up in their faces. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? And then he says something so powerful. He says, go away and bear the fruits or Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, go and do the things that display the reality of repentance. And see, brothers and sisters, coming to God in faith is not simply saying, I'm sorry. It's saying, please forgive me because I was wrong. And I mean coming to God first and foremost. It's a reality that we have sinned against God we have sinned against a holy God. And we respond in repentance. And that repentance should bear fruit. There's humility and a humble heart. And we see that very much in Manasseh's life. He humbled himself greatly. Isn't it interesting? It says he did what was evil. He did much evil. But then when it talks about his humility, it says he humbled himself greatly. It uses a stronger superlative to describe his humility than it even did to describe his sin. In other words, for all of his sin, his humility and his humbling himself before God was even greater. Repentance should be accompanied by humility. We could add to that shame. 
if there's one question you want to ask of the legal system in our land and the justice system is whatever happened to shame? Now it's all about protecting the guilty's rights, protecting the rights of the one that inflicted the pain, not the one who got pained. I heard a story of about, I might have told you this already, but I heard a story of a judge down in the southern and eastern United States who a young man was in his courtroom and he'd been in there so many times on one charge after another and his poor mother was there with him and she was, she was ashamed. She was just so worn out and you could just see this poor mom was just, she'd been through the ringer with this kid. And the judge got listening to all this stuff the kid was saying about how sorry he was and you could just tell it was just a load of baloney. And finally he said, you know what the problem here is? You don't understand shame. You don't understand what it means to feel ashamed of your sin. And he said, I'm going to impose a sentence on you, and this is what it is. The first part of it is you go back into my chambers with me. I'm going to take off my belt and give you a whipping. And the mother said, okay, go for it. And he did. And the kid came, 18-year-old kid came back and he was crying. And he said for the first time in his life, there was a brokenness in this kid. He had to experience the shame of being treated like a child for his crimes instead of being protected and shielded and pampered and all the rest of it. Whatever happened to shame? And Daniel in his prayer, when he's praying about that prayer of repentance for the people of Israel, he says, we are ashamed of the things that happened. There's a self-abhorrence. There is a thing out there on the on Facebook or on social media. There's a whole new trend, and it's got Christianity sort of twisted into it. I use the word twisted for good reason. It's the idea of loving yourself. And how we should be, you know, we should really be looking to love ourselves and accept ourselves. And yet, you know what the Bible says? That repentance is accompanied with a sense of loathing and self-abhorrence. Listen to what Ezekiel 36 and verse 31 says. I read it before. I'll read it again. Um, yeah, it's back on the first page, about third or fourth one down. It says, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. So much for self-love. You know what? There's something wrong with us when all we want to do is protect ourselves and protect our self-esteem and protect our sense of who we are. The Bible says that when we realize our evil ways, oh, you can't say that people are evil. That's, that's a very unkind thing to say. It's not politically correct. Well, Jesus said, if you, being evil, <laughs> know how to give good gifts, we are. In our sin, we are evil people. And he says, when you remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, you will loathe yourself. One of the marks of a repentant person, brothers and sisters, is a loathing. But does it stay? Well, that's a, there's the different question. It doesn't stay there because it's also a realization that I have done wrong. And there's a, a self-loathing, a self-abhorrence. But there's also a realization that Christ's blood has washed me clean. 
and not for any doing of myself, not for any thinking, not for any activity of mine. Am I clean before God? But that self-loathing can be washed away too, and I realize that I am forgiven by God's grace and God's grace alone. I'm forgiven by God's grace that allowed Christ to die on the cross. So that self-loathing is very important, but it needs to be there for a time and then be put away. There's even, oh, I can't think of the verse. It's, I hate that when my mind only works in half gear. When you, There's a verse that talks about um, not allowing something to remain unless they become downcast and despairing. I can't remember it, sorry. But there is a, there is a scripture out there. I'm going to find it when I get home because it's going to drive me crazy if I don't. But basically the idea is that there is a sense in which we need to come to a sense of shame but we also need to realize God's grace and accept the fact that God has forgiven us and pick up the pieces, realizing who we are truly before God, confessing our sin, trusting Him. Faith is mixed into repentance. In fact, in the New Testament preaching of the gospel, you know what's mentioned more than faith? is repentance. We've switched it all around. We've made all about belief and trust and faith, and we've pushed repentance to one side. I was actually in a church for a short time. It actually came and told me, the leadership told me, we don't believe that repentance has got anything to do with salvation. I said, really? And they said, yeah, we don't believe that. That's works. Mm, Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Same word that he uses in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him will not perish. So belief and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You cannot have one without the other. In fact, I would argue very strongly that repentance incorporates faith. Because when I turn from sin and I turn to God, that's a turning in faith that God will accept. I'm trusting God to keep his word. You said if I turn to you in faith and repentance, you would accept me. I'm taking you at your word. That's faith, right? So repentance incorporates faith. They're not different, not separate things. They're bound together. There is also a conversion. There's a change that goes on in the heart of man. Having said all of that, what do we do with this? Number one, first of all, we take a long, good, hard look at our own lives to see what sin needs to be repented of and deal with it. And it doesn't mean saying, I'm sorry, Lord. It means saying, I was wrong. Forgive me. And then there is a, a follow-on from that. Manasseh didn't stand there in Jerusalem and go, I'm really sorry about all the bad things I've done. Where's the Baal idol? And go worship it. No, he said, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And he took all the Baal idols and threw them out of the city and destroyed them and reestablished right worship with God and lived his life for God for the rest of his days. Never turned back again. That's a mark of someone who is truly repentant. We were talking last week about saving faith and how we know what real saving faith is. That's what real saving faith is. It perseveres. It carries on. There's a striving inside of us, a drive to please the Lord. Um, let's finish up with this. Take your Bibles. Look at the book of Colossians for a sec. Colossians chapter 1 from memory. So I hope I got it right. 
Yep. Colossians 1 and verse 9, 10, 11, and 12. This is Paul writing, as you know, and he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing the knowledge of God. All of those things there, walk, live in a manner pleasing, worthy of the Lord, sorry, pleasing him, bearing fruit, increasing the knowledge of God, all those things, they're all outflow, they're all marks of what repentance is. It's a changed life. No longer am I living to please myself, I'm living to please the Lord. No longer am I walking in a manner worthy of the pagan, unbelieving, godless world. I'm walking and living in a manner worthy of the Lord. My desire will never fully please the Lord, but our desire is to please the Lord. We're bearing fruit in every good work. We're bearing fruit to the glory of God. Why did John the Baptist say Go away and bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Go and display the reality of what's in here with what's out here and what's coming out of this. What an amazing God we have that gave us repentance, that called us to do it, gave it to us as a gift, and then by the power of the Spirit of God working in us, brings that fruit out of us. What an amazing, amazing God. What a life we have been called to live. I'm going to say one more thing. I said all the way through this, repeated a couple times. If you're pleading with someone, you're preaching and sharing the gospel with someone, and it just seems like they're not listening, don't despair. God's got a plan. And God is working that plan out. And in some senses, you have no idea what God is going to do with that person. Be faithful. Uh, you remember the story of uh, Charles Spurgeon. And he had 13, I think he was 13 or 15 years of age. He was going every church he could find. I think he was 13. And he, snowy day, he went to a church and he was halfway there and got word that the church was shut down for the day because it was too much snow. And he turned aside and he heard his little Methodist chapel on one side. And he walked in the back of this little Methodist chapel and there was eight people inside. And the regular preacher couldn't make it that day because it was too much snow. So an old farmer got up and I think the phrase, the, the verse he preached was, look unto me, all ye the ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And Spurgeon said, <laughs> in his usual punchy way, he said, the guy was so stupid that all he could do to preach a sermon was repeat the lines of the thing over and over again. You say, what's the point? The point is that man in faithfulness shared the gospel as simply as he knew how. And by God's grace, nobody even knows the man's name that preached the sermon by which God used to save Charles Spurgeon. Halfway through, he looks down at Spurgeon and he pointed at me. He said, you young man, you look like you're in the throes of death. Look unto me and be saved. And Spurgeon realized that God was speaking to him. So here's my, my, my plea with you. Share the gospel. Be faithful. Communicate it and allow God to do his work. Wait for God to do his work. Don't despair if God doesn't act on our timetable. God will bring repentance when God is good and ready. And also accept the fact that God may not bring repentance. 
But you don't know that. So preach the gospel and be faithful. All right. Pizza has long arrived. So let's uh, let's give thanks for that and thanks for our day uh, to the Lord. Loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks again for the gift of repentance. And Father, we look at the life of Manasseh and this tremendous change. Father, we would have written him off long before. And he committed some ungodly, wicked things, offering his sons in fire to an altar. Father, it just staggers our minds. And yet, Father, what staggers or what should stagger our mind even more is the depth, the greatness, the height of the grace and the love, your love for him. You sent him word and he would not listen. So you allowed him to be bound in chains. In the bottom of a dungeon, he came to the end of his own self. And in his distress, he cried out to you and he pleaded for your grace. And Father, to read those words that you were moved by his entreaty. And you responded and you restored him to his kingdom and to the land and to Jerusalem. And you gave him the time, O God, in grace to lead the nation back into a right worship of you. And Father, we don't know how long it was. We don't know what point it was in his reign that all this happened. I'm sure we can figure it out. But Father, you in grace continued and you had your way with this man. And Father, it makes us realize that we must go out and preach the gospel and plead with people to repent. Even what we would think of as the worst sinners, you can reach them. And Father, remind ourselves again of that beautiful little saying. There is no sin for which damnation is not justly deserved. No sin so small. But there is also no sin so great, so large that you cannot forgive. Father, we plead with you that each of us would live a repentant, godly lifestyle. Father, help us not to fall into the trap of the I'm sorry generation. But Father, to exercise biblical, godly repentance, to seek forgiveness, to feel that sense of shame and self-loathing over the evil and the sin that we have committed and cry out for the cleansing of the blood of Christ and to accept by faith that you do forgive. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Father, for the worship we enjoyed this morning. Father, we thank you for six new members of this church. And again, we plead with you, O God, for your grace and your hand to be upon them. Father, we pray that you would encourage them greatly. Father, we pray that you would do a great work in their lives. And Father, that you would continue to work in the life of this church. Father, we seek your help and we seek your blessing. And we give you thanks again for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.